I'm shipping two children off into the world, and I'm moving into a home by myself. Whoa. Yeah. Kind of by yourself. Kind of by myself. Because I've never been to Portland, and I need to see my room. I still haven't gotten pictures yet. Yeah. He's a pain in my ass. I just can't get rid of him. I need to know where my future furniture is going and start sending you my Amazon choices so you can get that shit ordered. Welcome to another episode of Dive In Justice, the podcast that explores building ideal communities with our less than ideal selves. I'm Shandine Garcia. And I'm Delvin Jackson III, and today we are excited to be joined by lifelong educator and activist Jeff Bean. However, as always, before we dive into that conversation, I wanted to check in with my co-host. So, Shandine, how are you? I'm doing great, except for there's a lot of activity happening at my house right now, and I'm super self-conscious. So I'm going to mute myself, and you tell me how your high and low was. You are the worst. <clears throat> yes, I am. Yeah, I can get into that. For the low, for me, um, this is the month of my father's birthday. And this will be, what, the second birthday without him? As it gets closer and closer to June 24, that is coming up for me more and more. I just really miss him, you know, and... Between all the with all the things I've had to navigate, uh, particularly in these last couple of years, um, even outside of his passing, I would say it's just been a rough year and a half, two years. And he was always the person I would tend to be able to go to and kind of process with. Um, not that I don't have community. I definitely do. And I'm grateful for that. But um he was just such a big part of that support community that I had and, um, you know, obviously understood me in ways that no one else, you know, only a parent can. And so his absence is sorely felt right now. And um, it amazes me how <clears throat> there are days where I can feel really grateful and a certain sense of peace around his passing and a closeness to him in spirit and all of these things that can actually make me feel bolstered and, and good. Um, but then there are days where it just feels so hard, you know. Um, and to an extent, almost debilitating. And that doesn't happen often, but it surprises me in the ways that it can show up. And so um, I'm holding that right now. And and that feels like a low because life doesn't stop <laughs> just because I'm, you know, mourning. In terms of my high um, for this week, I got uh, to watch my oldest graduate from high school uh, yesterday, actually. And so um, that felt really good. It felt like a big check, right? Like, okay, cool. And um, I felt like he handled his senior year. He took it in stride, given that he was at the same school since second grade. And then just as he was coming into his senior year, they closed the school. 
And so when he should have been able to graduate with his lifelong folks, he was actually having to graduate with a lot of strangers. He did virtual this whole school year. And so he didn't know anyone that he finished with. He never met anyone that he finished with. And so um, given all of those circumstances, I felt like he showed a lot of perseverance. I felt like he showed a lot of grit. Um, and so I was just really proud of him and, and glad to be able to share that with him and uh, f- other family members that came out yesterday to celebrate with him. So, yeah, that's my that's my high. But, yeah, that's what's going on with me. So what's going on with you? Appreciate the sharing. Mm-hmm. I'll pick up on on your high because my high is similar. My youngest boy, you said your oldest graduated. My youngest graduated um, is graduating next week. And last mm-hmm. night we had there was some honor ceremony for him. And I think what was the most fun is he received two awards, and one was like not a throwaway award, but it was just his high school counselor sort of reading pieces of his college application and, and, and like honoring his volunteer work and volunteer work in our home is a given. That's not something you get rewarded for. That's mm-hmm. what you do. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we were both like, eh, okay, whatever, like, great. Um, but the cool thing was the award he got for this class that um, some folks who our audience knows because we um, have interviewed them, but the the Dunbar twins fought really hard to have a class in the local school system. And the class was Courageous Conversations. And it was their way to get ethnic studies into the um, curriculum. Mm -hmm. And they fought really hard to have it. And so my son was actually a part of that senior year with a teacher who Leah Dunbar mentors or mentored. And she, um, recommended Isaiah for this award. Hmm. Uh, I don't know hmm. if it's called Courageous Conversation Award. I can't remember what it was, but her description of him and how he shows up and the conversations that he was willing to talk about and tackle mm-hmm. was beautiful to hear. And not only was it beautiful to hear just as a mom, he was moved by it. Hmm. He And and that's, that's a big deal, I think, for um, an 18-year-old who... He's, you know, my friend says he walks around with sovereignty on his spine. Like he knows who he is. He's sure of, of his roots and to feel that gratitude that someone can see him in his fullness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's big. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Um, And so what we did last night, as I was saying earlier, we were making a bunch of um, tobacco ties for Lane Community College's Indigenous graduation. And so all his aunties and his uncles were at my house while we put, I hooked my computer into the big screen, into my TV so we could see that while actually celebrating or getting, preparing to celebrate another graduation. It was just beautiful. All of it was just um, energizing and full of love and it made me happy. Most excellent. Yeah. Most excellent. Um, my low is it's a it's a larger low that I would love to bring in guests who can talk about it a little bit. The the struggle with the concept of race being a social construct in Indian country is really hard to navigate. And there's this author who I I liked. Um, 
who a little bit like, I think I saw a headline that was like the Elizabeth Warren sci-fi, you know, how Elizabeth was claiming that she was Native American and there was all of this, the controversy around it. Well, Rebecca Roanhorse was the sci-fi writer who also was blown up as suddenly this potentially fake Indian. And I haven't fully followed it because I don't want to breathe energy into it yet. There's something Deeply disturbing, and we've talked about it before at Delma, deeply disturbing about people who want to be Indian and what that is, and they lean into this stereotype of Native America in all of these ways, and suddenly that puts us or people in the position of policing people who claim an identity, Mm -hmm. and it's so much larger than that, Mm -hmm. and people talk about it in in binaries or polarities, very black and white, you are, you aren't, or you are like, as though it's that simple. And it's, it just makes me so sad about the level of pressure in the policing. It makes me sad when I think about a lot of mixed race people navigating the system and they question their own identity um, it makes me sad when I think about my own children navigating as as Choctaw and Laguna Mexican Irish beings, mm-hmm. like the pressure they're going to have to prove in addition to their own internalized oppression, like all of the things we're dealing with so much. Now I got to sit there and that question, my author, this author that I liked, it's mm-hmm. it's enraging. Mm-hmm. The identity police, the identity politics that don't center sovereignty in a way that we could do it better. We could do it differently. And I'm not saying I have the answer. So if I had the answer, I'd be selling it 24 hours a day. I'd be rich. Um, I'm just saying it's enraging. It's enraging. And it's related to that piece that what you just said when I was talking about Isaiah, that like sh- the teacher saw him. Mm-hmm. This state fought really hard to write and pass a bill that gave us permission to wear regalia or something that's culturally significant for graduation in Oregon. The fact that we had to actually write and pass a bill that because we weren't being allowed to do that. So we're trying to actually show up as our fullest selves. People who, and I don't know Rebecca's story, so I don't want to like indict her, but there are people who show up trying to pretend that they're us and then they get to be, and now they're getting identity policed. Like it's a whole fucking hot mess. Whenever, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. No, 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 go ahead. Whenever we have to grapple with any of these made up identities, and it's not just the identities themselves that's problematic, I think it's the meaning we associate with them that makes it so tricky to navigate. Um, I always go back to Rachel Dolezal several years ago. Yep, I remember. And, um, the more folks want to like push against the boundaries of binaries and fixed identities, the more we are going to have to grapple with, um, the implications of living with what we've lived with for so long. And that, <clears throat> and some of us take for granted as like set in stone. These are facts. You either this or you that, right? Um, 
but you have folks for all kinds of reasons who are going to push against that, play with that, and that's going to force us to then question it and talk about it. And you'll get this wide range of responses from, you know, support to policing to whatever. And yeah, I don't know how you even begin to organize those conversations in ways that that can be productive. I don't know how to begin to organize my own response, like my own brain in it, much less sit there and talk to someone about Mm it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't even know, like, the permissions I need to give myself to be frustrated, to feel sympathy, to feel like, if you think about the people who are desperately wanting to pull onto uh, or, or to, to um, take on an identity, there's some deeply broken in there. And I mean, and Resume Menekin talks about it all the time, where he talks about, like, if you're not of this identity, you've got some shit that you got to heal in yourself and figure out your connections. I remember telling a friend of mine who is deeply grieving. Um, um, he's a white man, a really, really good friend of mine. And we were deeply talking and he was hurting and working through stuff. And, and as we were talking, I was like, I don't know, man, like do what your people do. Like my people sweat. Like when I'm like, I got to go, like go into a sweater, like run up a hill until all of the toxins come out. Like, what do your people do? And he was like, Right, like the the loss of connection mm-hmm. for white people to a white identity is real, mm-hmm. and it's um I don't want to undermine that while also sharing my anger at these other folks. But then don't take on mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I can't even organize myself in it. So mm-hmm. yeah. I want to keep unpacking it, unpacking that, because there's more in it, I think. Um, and as we unpack it, I would like to take this opportunity to introduce our listeners to our guest today. You heard Delma and I check in and wanted to let you know how excited we are to be joined by this lifelong educator and activist, Jeff Bean. And so with that, um, I'm going to let my co-host introduce his friend. Yeah. I'm so excited to have Jeff being here with us today. Um, I've had the pleasure of knowing Jeff now for several years. I've known him largely through initially his work in um, Flint Central High School. Uh, So he's a hometown hero of mine for sure. And um, I know he's currently working with future teachers um, at a university level um, to get them right. (laughs) <laughs> so that when they come into these future classroom settings, they have some damn sense. Um, but on a personal note, I've always found uh, Jeff to be full of love, courage, lots of wisdom. And um, I don't know anyone in my peer group that's come through either his classroom spaces or some of the other spaces he's been in. I've never met anyone who didn't have just so much respect and admiration uh, for Mr. Bean and for his work. I was excited when he became a fellow with the Center for Whole Communities during our year-long fellowship a while back. 
Um, I think I threw his hat in the ring, and so I was excited when they uh, when they grabbed him up. So um, I had to reach out to this brother sooner than later, and so we got him on season one, and I'm excited for that as well. Um, first white guest we've had on the show. Now that I think about it, um, so we're gonna give you shit for that off top. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, welcome, Jeff. Welcome, 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 and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much. I, I mean, I'm moved by that introduction. Thank you. Hell yeah, it's the least I could do. It's the least I could do. Um, I'm moved by that introduction too. I didn't know Delma had a heart. <laughs> Holy cow! You done? That's the first time I think I've seen that level of, you know, care and love. I feel like I might get teary-eyed here. I'm editing all that shit out, just so we're clear. (laughs) I think I mentioned this at some point, but you're our first white guest on the show. And so I just wanted to ask you, um, why are y'all like this? (laughs) <laughs> you know I'm, I'm like Shandine if I right, knew the answer right, that right, I'd right. be selling this shit one of the things that I'm always interested in hearing from our guests is kind of their self-conception around how they ended up doing what they do where they do it etc so I want to invite you to Tell that story, if you will. How did you, what brought you into the space that you see yourself in now? I had two things. Um, at 16 years old, um, I had a social studies teacher give me the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, and as a white kid in Sturgis, Michigan, which was an all-white rural community, um, that was the first time I understood that there was a world outside of my little town. Um, and I was blessed that I had Malcolm as that guide, um, because he was so clear about what the world looked like and, and how he entered into it and, and fit into it. Um, and then, um, my senior year in high school, um, I wasn't planning on going to college, um, took the SAT because my girlfriend took the SAT um, and ended up doing really well on it. And so my father essentially kicked me out of the house um, and I went to Oakland University um, and met uh, different people in in my suite of rooms. Um, There was myself, um, a black kid from uh, Detroit, a Hispanic kid from Detroit, a Jewish kid from New York, and a born-again Christian from Rockford, um, and me. Um, And so we had to learn to live together, and it was this great lab for me to develop um, my understanding of the world. And I got involved. It was the first place, um, while I was at Oakland, I saw um, the documentary on the murder of Fred Hampton. I saw um, a piece by Chavez called The Wrath of Grapes, um, that made me understand what migrant farmers were dealing with. Um, I 
worked with Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda when they came through town, um, different things. And so that's really what began to move me towards this um, and realize that the life I had been moving towards was not really an option for me anymore. Um, I did different things in my 20s. I was an actor for a while. I did construction. Um, I did... uh, restaurant work. Um, I did all kinds of different things. Uh, worked at a mental health facility, um, running an activity center for kids, a drop-in center, um, all kinds of different things. But I was working for uh, Earhart Seminar Series, which was a self-awareness kind of movement in the late 70s, um, early 80s. And I got involved with them and I was doing very well. I had a great salary lived at the top of the uh, water tower place in Chicago and uh, was doing well and started doing volunteer work on the south side of Chicago with kids. And I realized that it wasn't the kids, it was the system. And I went to Werner and said, I think I need to quit. I got to go back to school. And he said, great, you're fired. And he paid for my first year back to school. Um, And I got my teaching degree and went to Flint and when at the end of every year, I would say, I've learned more from you than you have from me. That was never a lie for me. Um, I learned every year from these kids. Um, their willingness to um, share their lives with me, to be honest and open as we talked about different types of literature, as we talked about different types of life themes, um, was just stunning to me. Um, and it's, it's how I learned, um, to see past the, the, the things that normally culture would have put in my face. I appreciate what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I struggle in where the burden is and where it should be. That's one. Two, um, I actually really deeply believe, and I am going to get shit for this. Um, when you were talking about like we don't we shouldn't have to wait for a Native American teacher, we shouldn't have to wait for a black teacher, we shouldn't have to I think white teachers need to move the fuck aside and center Absolutely. in Absolutely. indigenous <laughs> and like black and brown teachings, period. Like I, I I just do. I think we need to revamp obviously the way our whole education system goes and it needs to be centered in um brown and black knowledge. I have a question for you on that, actually. For um, me or for Jeff? Please. Ask Jeff. No, I'm asking you. No, ask Jeff, man. He's our he's our person. I mean, but you just said some shit, and I need to know. <laughs> now, whether this makes the cut or not, I don't know, but I'm yeah. curious. <laughs> um, are you saying no white teachers? No, I'm not saying no white teachers, but I am pushing, or um, as, as my friend Daniel beautifully always says, push back just a little bit on that on the like we don't have to wait for white we don't have to wait for indigenous teachers we don't have to wait for black teachers i'm saying we need to revamp the system so that like there's not a dearth of us as teachers right mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. like we center mm-hmm. we center you know white women to be teachers we center white men to be principals and professors mm-hmm. period mm-hmm. and we need to fucking be done with that shit yeah, i want to share I, we I used to work with a group called the American Social History Project, which was about rewriting history lessons for kids. 
um, based more in reality. And we were able to interview these two women from Choctaw Nation. Um, and my first question was, so what is it you want me to teach about your culture to our students? And her response was very clear. I don't want you to teach shit. You know, and she was absolutely, it was the first time it hit me that clear that it's not my position to teach somebody else's history. You know, we can, I can, we can, I can give you processes to look at history, but it's not mine to teach. And so I think you're absolutely right that, you know, one of my questions when I get involved in situations like this that I ask constantly is how can I get more variety in people coming into schools of ed? I can teach who comes to me, but I can't do anything with folks who don't come to my room. And I recognize they don't come for a whole number of reasons. You know, it's not that they aren't out there or that they don't want to. I get that. Um, but but you're absolutely right, Shandine, that that's one of the key things that has to happen is it, not necessarily the elimination of white teachers, but certainly a reduction of them. Yeah, I think diversifying the educator workforce, in addition to blowing up the current system and, right. and what it's been, because there's a problem if we were to say, so this K-12 system crushes brown and black bodies, but we're going to recruit anybody that is still a little bit alive and not fully crushed and put them back into a higher ed system that's going to crush them further exactly. and then put them into a teacher prep program that's going to crush them further. We're going to spit them out and put them back into that same location that began their damage you know, to begin with. Like begin damaging them to begin with. So like there is something along that trajectory, which we obviously need to, and I don't think you're implying otherwise um, sure. a, a, at all. I, I, and I also think that um, the place that we're remiss the most is in the early learner workforce. Absolutely. They're all brown and black women and it's not a professionalized workforce. And like you want to talk about a location to like lead into and revolutionize a system. That's where we need to start. These, these mommies and aunties who are raising our babies and getting, you know, below minimum wage, um, pay for it. Yeah. I used to think that the, the educational hierarchy was, you know, college professor, high school teacher, elementary teacher, daycare worker, when it's exactly the opposite, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. learning happens from birth to three years old mm -hmm. after that we're just doing trims you know um and so you we've got to have different people involved in that process you know or mm -hmm. ways to support people who are going to do that um, my wife does a lot of work with harris's work on aces um and it's just stunning to me you know i was listening to pedro uh talked about in the city of Boston in 2015, 75% uh, of kindergartners served three or more days of suspension. Kindergartners. Mm -hmm. How, you know, and nobody questioned that system. You know, mm -hmm. and that just, that just stuns me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There are so many questions I want to ask, and I think what I want to do um, is invite you into um, a brief conversation around white identity and pride. Um, I've said for a long time 
that <clears throat> if we can't, if white people can't learn to talk about white identity in ways that marry healthy identity and a sense of pride in a healthy identity or healthy version of this, whatever that needs to look like, if that can't happen, then what's I think what's going to continue to happen is like this polarizing argument, right? Like when I listen to current conversations, even around critical race theory, it's all it's always about you know they're trying to teach our kids to hate themselves, right? Um, white nationalists are like this is the only space you can be white and be proud, right? And I feel like if we can't figure out because what I see, and I'm being cynical, I own that, but in my cynicism. What I see is two camps. I see uber proud, unhealthy white nationalists in one camp. And then I see a bunch of like, quote unquote, liberal white folks walking around with their head down and their tail between their legs, being overly apologetic for everything that comes out their mouth all the fucking time. And it's like, if you're white, those are your two options. Right. And my thing is, we that's not going to work. Like we're not getting anywhere. If those are the two oversimplified camps that we have to operate out of. And so I guess I'm want to invite you to like, do you see the dynamics similarly? What am I missing? You know, like, where are you on that? I see that. I mean, that's a, a pretty astute observation about how white culture divides itself right now. Um, that, it's, it's one of the arguments that I have with Malcolm, my son, all the time about um, he, he is so anti-liberal, um, you know, that he says, what, he says liberals are the most dangerous people in America right now. Um, and Malcolm said that, you know, he said, I'd, I'd much rather deal with a Klansman because I know where I stand. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't have to worry about a liberal turning around and stabbing me in the back. And, and there's a lot to that. And so when I when I look at that, I see the option coming in economics as opposed to critical race theory, mm-hmm. you know, that I think if we can begin to take pride in my proletarianism as opposed to my race, then I think I move forward more. I think I, I gain more ground. Um, there's a lot to be said that race has been used to divide the working class um, and to keep people separated. So, um, I'm sorry, it looked like you both just froze right there. So, <laughs> I thought I'd gone out. Uh, no, we were actually just deeply thinking <laughs> what you were saying. <laughs> so, so, I see... Um, I, I wonder, you know, should I be moving away from issues of race altogether and, and really label it as a working class piece that we need to collaborate together um, regardless of anything? Because in that, then you begin to truly see that all lives do matter um, in, in an honest way as opposed to avoiding the fact that we have excluded everybody else who isn't white.
and I, it feels like an argument I tend to hear sometimes from uh, the quote-unquote socialists Uh historically in my life, white socialists particularly, and that always rubs me funky because I guess at this stage of my evolution, I'm wondering if we can't do, like, can't we just walk and chew gum? Like, can't we do, can't we have both of these conversations simultaneously? Um, because I definitely see a connection between economics and race, to be sure. Right. Um, but I don't think you could talk about economics without talking about race, nor can you talk about race without economics. And so to pull them apart feels problematic to me. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm still... I'm still grappling with that. And and I would agree with you in the sense that you can't just walk away from one or the other, that they are intertwined. Um, I think it's impossible to separate the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and we very purposely kept them together, you know, so to just say magically all of a sudden, nope, we're only going to talk about this. You're absolutely right. Doma, um, in the sense that, that, that is avoiding part of the issue. Um, so, I guess then to go back to your original question, can there can there be a third option that isn't white nationalism or oh my god I'm horrible? There comes this point where I think you gain a confidence. If I can begin to real, you know, a lot of people say, "Why do you say white people? You're white people." Well, I don't see myself as part of a white nationalist movement. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I have that self-confidence. I know who I am and I know where I stand in that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what it's going to take. But we, again, I would look at education and say we need to create a spot in the educational field where we can have kids stand in that third circle. And that, that doesn't exist right now, you know, mm-hmm. because... Power says you're either for us or against us. And so, you know, they're doing everything they can to keep from creating that third circle or fourth or fifth or however many layers we ultimately develop. Mm-hmm. Um, because we can't, again, I come back to, to the economics of it, but we can't sell stuff to people who are secure. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you, you don't sell perfume if you're feeling comfortable with who you are. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about what your thoughts are on this um, national racial reckoning and the locations that it's asking people to shift both practices. For example, there's pressure in, in, in programs to diversify. There's pressure in philanthropy to grant to BIPOC owned um, foundations. There's pressures for, consultants, you know, to be BIPOC owned and led. And and then you've got these big white consulting firms who are like, ah, like we're going to lose business. So like, what are your thoughts in the context where you see yourself and in the um, sectors that you navigate where this racial reckoning is coming to head? Like, what do you, what are your reflections on that? I think, 
I mean, part of it is in, until we force things to happen, you know, I go back to Shuttlesworth's statement. I've never seen a rattlesnake bite off its own head. Um, so, you know, it isn't going to change unless we force it to. So when I see um, corporations pull out of Atlanta or um, foundations, you know, coming together around uh, people of color becoming board members or taking money into communities. Um, I think those are good things, Um, but ultimately it has to get more organic. Now, we tend to lead or we tend to follow a lead like that. Um, If nobody shows us the way, we we don't do that. Um, I mean, there's always been stories of, small little pockets, you know, where individually people lived together. There was a community in Flint um, that was incredibly well integrated, um, but it only lasted so long. Um, and it, it, so it, it didn't have a, a, a lifeline to it. So I think we're going to have to see some things like that. We're going to need that forced reckoning first. And it, it will feel forced. Um, and there will be people who will point that out. And we're just going to have to live with that until we can find a way to make it more of who we are and what we do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I, I look back, Delma and I were talking a, a while back about um, the uh, Black Falcon and, and uh, the Winter Soldier. And in that last piece, I watched that again uh, yesterday. Um, Cap says at the end, you know, it's it's not just what you do; it's who's in the room when you make the decision to do that. Um, I know it's incredibly symbolic, but it makes a difference that Catherine Harris is standing behind uh, Biden anytime I see him now. I feel better knowing that voice is there. And she's not a screaming, you know, radical or anything by any means, you know. But the fact that there's at least a beginning to hear that voice, um, that there is a Native American in charge of the interior, you know, some 300 years later, but by gosh, we got there, you know. Um, It's a step. Is it the end? No. But those are the things, you know, we've got to get people in the room. And that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I'll say two things to that, Jeff. One is, my son is making me rewatch all the Marvel and Timeline order, and I haven't gotten to <laughs> Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So if that was a spoiler, I'm going to be on your doorstep. Like, just enraged. If you can be spoiled this far after. I know, I'm a terrible <laughs> human. that's on you. Envisioning um, a, a space and place where reparations is realized and resources are realized, and I can build something green from the ground up um, that's informed by all kinds of expertise and um, one foot in history one foot in the present, one foot in imagination and in the future. Um, and so if I were to have all of that and all of those boxes are checked 
and I wanted to bring you in. Twofold question here. What do you perceive as your greatest gift to this community? Right. It's not a utopia, but you don't have to worry about resources. Right. So if money might normally be an issue, don't worry about it. We got you. So what do you see as your greatest gift to bring to that community? One and two. What is the petty shit you're going to also bring with you into that community that the rest of us are going to have to contend with because you are a human being and you have bad days? What do those look like? What's going to cause us to roll our eyes collectively about Jeff when Jeff is not having a good day? I think it's easier for me to answer the second one first because I know it's going to be my guilt. You know, you're going to have to deal with the historical guilt that I will bring with me. You know, I will immediately want to apologize and you're going to say, shut the fuck up. You know, that's not helpful. Um, But I I think so that would be the the second question. Um, What I would bring personally, individually, I think, is um, a gift of, of both metaphor and humor that I recognize if I'm going to educate people, I have to, one, be able to get them to laugh. Um, mm-hmm. Humor, to me, has always been the highest level of intelligence. Um, that people who can make each other laugh are intimate in ways that other people will never understand. Um, and so I think that's the, the first piece. But I also think that we have to be able to deal with metaphor and symbolism because that's how cultures operate. Um, you and I may have different connections to a specific piece of vocabulary, but if I can create an image for you, um, it makes a difference. Um, the, this, the metaphor that I started every classroom or every school year with was telling my kids that life is a jar of marbles, that the content of our lives, the things we do, the house we own, the car we drive, the clothes we wear is the content. That's the marbles. And the jar is the context, the way we hold our lives. And most people spend their whole lives playing marbles. I'm going to teach you how to play jars in this room. And that was a symbol that every one of those kids got. They knew that and never failed. Somewhere end of January, 1st of February, somebody would look at somebody else and say, your jar just changed. Mm. And it made it me, it got me every time. <laughs> it gets me just thinking about it. Um, so that's the gift that I would bring, I think, would be to be able to create metaphors. Once you can get me to understand a concept, I can get lots of other people to understand it. Sure. Yeah, I dig. I dig. Um, I don't think I heard you agree to come back yet. <laughs> sure, sure. It's uh, my thank you. 
my HR department says we can negotiate that same. <laughs> there you go with that white dude shit it's on me. me. All right, fine, fine. <laughs> oh man, um, thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you both for doing this. This is so important and so helpful for folks out there. Hmm. Appreciate that. I also like you sharing the gift of um, the metaphor. First of all, the, the exact example you gave, but um, I think being able to help folks connect. Um, we, we all connect differently, but if that's a way that can help link the known to new or new to new, I think it is a gift in the world, and I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Agree. Agree. And, um, yeah, that's a good metaphor for what I've known you to do in the way that I've seen other students that you've had talk about you on Facebook, et cetera. Um, so it's it's fitting uh, that that would be uh, something you could speak to and point to now in terms of what you might bring to bear in other spaces. Because uh, there's definitely plenty of folks who are back, back that idea of you as being exactly that and bringing exactly that to the spaces you tend to occupy. So thank you for doing that. Dive In Justice is a co-production of the Center for Whole Communities and Shoreline Consulting. The Center for Whole Communities exists to build capacity at the individual, organizational, and community level to deepen awareness, embrace differences, and value relationships, thus making change possible. Shoreline Consulting co-constructs solutions and strategies that align with your goals and leverages the voices, perspectives, and wisdom of those who stand to benefit. For more information on the Center for Whole Communities, find us at wholecommunities.org. For more information on Shoreline Consulting, visit us on the web at thinkshorelines.com. Diving Justice theme song created by Nasir Thomas Jackson. Doug Fairstein is our audio engineer. Sarah McCandless is our administrative support. Jennifer Cotting and Soraya Yamada Sapien help us out with marketing and promotional support. Thank you all so much. Without your continued efforts, this show would not be possible.